So before, before you blame Becky or the praise band, uh, I want you to know that I requested that. Uh, sometimes, sometimes I do stuff just to see if I can make Mike have an aneurysm on stage. But before you blame me, I just want you to think. If that got your attention, if that even got you riled up a little bit, then it served its purpose. Um, because this morning, I want you to feel the contrast between the reverence of O Holy Night and the song that we just sang talking about the devil running. I want you to feel that. I, want you to, I even want you to rest in that and struggle with that. Because today we're starting our Advent series. And we are starting it in a strange place. And I'm excited about this series, uh, and we'll talk more about it as the day goes on, but guys, today I want you to realize that there is a difference between what God offers and what Satan offers you. There's a difference between the perfect gift of God and whatever trinket Satan tries to sell you or trick you into taking. And church, it, it, it breaks my heart. When I see Satan reign in our lives, when I see Satan reign in my life, when he gets me to the point where, where I'm willing to accept just some, some token of even good stuff that the world has instead of the great, perfect stuff that is offered to us through Jesus Christ. And I pray that this Advent series brings us all to the place where we are more boldly and more willingly able to say, I want what Jesus has. I want the gifts of Christmas that comes from Christ, not anything that, that, that Satan and the world has to offer us. Today, I want us to, to, to dig down into Revelation chapter 12. Maybe in your mind, a weird place for us to start an Advent series, but I think, it, I hope, and my prayer has been and is today that it is a powerful place for us to realize the magnitude the beauty, the ugliness, the viciousness of the Christmas story. I, I was first introduced to this as I was going to seminary at Ashland Theological, and, and Dr. Michael Thompson taught us a, a homiletics class, and we were spending all five and a half days of our class. Uh, we were supposed to go all the way through the book of Revelation and just learn how to preach from the book of Revelation, how to interpret, interpret the symbolism and the imagery in Revelation and how that points us in everything to Jesus Christ. Uh, by the end of the last day, we got to Revelation chapter 13. Uh, so we didn't get as far as he had wanted to and as far as I had hoped. But man, it was rich. And it was there that I first saw the beauty of the Christmas story in Revelation chapter 12. Earlier this year, and I think he's still going through this maybe, Matt Chandler, who's the pastor of Village uh, Church in Texas, uh, preached through Revelation. And we put a link to his sermon, to one of his sermons uh, in our one sheet for, for today. And he preaches uh, longer than Scott and I do. Uh, so if you don't have another hour in which to, to listen to a message, we told you to, to go to this message and fast forward to this point, this minute, uh, and listen to this portion uh, of that message because it's powerful. Um, and, uh, but here in Revelation chapter 12, we see the story of Christmas not through the gospel accounts, not through sort of the imagery that we saw uh, when Becky read from Luke chapter 2 or in, in the serenity of O Holy Night, but we see it through the words of John the Revelator. Uh, and this is not your grandma's Christmas story. 
Eugene Peterson, who is the, the author of the, the, the paraphrase, The Message, uh, he, he said this. Uh, he said, this is not the nativity story that we grew up with, but it is the nativity story all the same. And Peterson is right. When we turn to Revelation chapter 12, uh, there, is, there is no baby in a manger. There are no shepherds rejoicing in the fields or wise men bringing gifts uh, to lay before the king. There, there's no worshiping. They're not there worshiping in person. There's no, there's no angels singing. There's angels but we see them engaged in this cosmic battle of good versus evil. In this Christmas story, there's a, a beautifully clothed woman, a, a male son, and a red fiery dragon that stands ready to devour, to eat the son that is about to be born to shepherd all the nations. This is an apocalyptic Christmas story, as Daniel Aiken has said in his paper. Revelation 12 gives us uh, insight into three Christmas realities, the, the history of Christmas, the, the tension of Christmas, and the hope of Christmas. Revelation 12, 1 through 7 tells us, shows us sort of this paranorma uh, of salvation history. It tells us, shows us this fantastic imagery, um, and it points us to the past, it addresses the present, and looks even to the future. This is a Christmas story, maybe unlike you've ever heard it before. But in it, we can learn from God. We can be reminded of who God is. And I pray that we feel the gifts of Christmas as we read through this. This is not a Christmas story that begins in Matthew chapter 1. Uh, it's not a Christmas story that begins in the city of Bethlehem. It's a story that actually begins in a garden called Eden. It's immediately after Adam and Eve had, had sinned against God to that ancient serpent that we'll read about today again, that, that God says this in Genesis 3.15. He says, I will put hostility between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He will strike, he will crush your head, and you will strike, you will bruise his heel. This promise that was made to Adam and Eve is called Proto-Evangelon, or the first gospel. Clear back in Genesis chapter 3, we have the gospel being laid before us. That someone is coming, and he's going to crush the head of Satan. And that, that, that promise was repeat, repeated to Abraham. It was repeated to David. It was repeated over and over. The fulfillment of those promises are made in the gospel, and we see those in the gospel accounts. And now we have it explained to us of all places in Revelation chapter 12. Becky read from Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 6, and then about the angels rejoicing. And that's the story we think about when we think about Christmas. And that's the story we should think about when we think about Christmas, because that's what we see. That's what we realize. That's when, when there's a special on TV. That's what we see. That's what we can watch. That's what we understand. What the book of Revelation gives us is this, it's like God is taking the curtains of, of the physical world and pulling them back so that we can see what's going on behind the scenes in the spiritual realm. That's what we see when we get to Revelation. That's, what, that's the explanation that we get. So yes, there was a, there was a young couple who couldn't find a place in the hotel, a place with a bed, a proper place for Jesus to be born. That had to be, Jesus had to be born in a barn. 
with cows and donkeys and sheep. We see that. We can feel that. If we, if we try hard enough, we can even smell that. But what Revelation does is it peels back the layers of a physical world and lets us see the battle that the birth of Jesus kicked off between good and between evil. He, John gives us that behind-the-scenes look. If you have your Bible, if you have your phone or your, your iPad, any device, and you have, you're able to pull up or open up to Revelation chapter 12, I encourage you to do that as we read through the, the two-thirds of this chapter this morning together. Revelation chapter 12, starting in verse number 1. And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains, in the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. So far you can sort of see the Christmas story in those words. You have a woman, she's clothed, she's crying out in birth pains. In chapter 3, then, then another sign appeared in heaven, and behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on its head seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she, get, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with an iron rod. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she was to be, where she was a, where she has a place prepared by God in which she will be nourished for 1260 days. And this is imagery that is hard for us to sometimes place on top of that gospel account of the birth narrative of Jesus. But in this behind the scenes look, we're able to be reminded or maybe taught for the first time some core truths about God. Verses 1 and 2 teach us that we can trust God to keep his word. John says, a, a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet, and on her, crown, on her, and had, on her head a crown of 12 stars. This is the first of seven images that, that we see, or symbols, that we see in the book of Revelation. This is also the second of four symbolic women in the book of Revelation. Back in, in, in chapter number two, we are introduced to Jezebel and all that she represents. In, in chapter 17, 17, we're introduced to a prostitute. In chapter 19, the bride of the lamb. But here in chapter 12, we're introduced to this woman who is clothed with the sun, the moon under her feet, and crown on her head. If you can't picture that, this is beautiful. She is magnificently clothed. The identity of this woman is, is, is debated, is variously understood. If you grew up in a, more of a, a Catholic tradition, you may take this woman to be Mary. It sounds a whole lot like Mary. If you grew up in a Reformed or a, or a Protestant or even a Jewish background, you, you, this woman uh, would, would be used to picture Israel. Now, in Revelation, if you don't know this about Revelation, it is tough to understand sometimes. You have all these vivid images and all these symbols, and sometimes there is more than one thing that something can represent. And even when it's not, it's okay if we don't see eye to eye on it. 
And this is one of those times. Because whether it's Mary or whether it's Israel, keep this in mind. The Savior came from both. The Savior was to come through God's chosen people, Israel, through the singular person, Mary. So we can disagree on what specifically or what exactly this is because I think both are right. There's sort of this dualistic imagery where both can be right. The Messiah was coming through Israel, through the Virgin Mary. And then we see this second sign. Well, first of all, she was crying out in pains of childbirth, and that's imagery that we see all throughout the Old Testament. You see this cycle of Israel that, where they would follow God for a while, and then they would turn their back on God. They would worship God. They would forget about God. And then it was over and over, it refers to as if pain in childbirth. God promised that he would send a rescuer, a redeemer, a deliverer, so we can trust God to keep his word. The second thing that we can, we can trust God on is to honor His Son. You see, we see the second sign that appears, right? And this is where Revelation's story gets real weird when it comes to the birth narrative. Because here we're introduced to this great red dragon, seven heads, ten horns, and on its head seven diadems or seven crowns. He's identified in verse 9 as the ancient serpent, the devil, Satan, right? Before, okay, we could debate about who the lady is. There is no debating who the serpent is. Satan, the, the deceiver, the devil, the ancient serpent. Thirteen times in Revelation, Satan is described as a dragon. As a dragon, that strikes fear in our hearts. This fiery red imagery tells us of his murderous, murderous character. Seven heads, ten horns, ten crowns speaks of his great power and authority. And we see this later if you keep reading into verse number, or chapter 13 uh, and chapter 17. <coughs> verse 4 informs us that the dragon swept its tail and he swept away a third of all the stars. This is talking about his fall from grace, his fall because his head got too big and his hunger for power was too big that he fell from heaven. And since that declaration of God, Satan has sought in his fallen state to devour the male child, to prevent Jesus from showing up. He does this all throughout Scripture. You can go back to, uh, back to Eden, or right after Eden. Uh, he moved Cain to kill Abel. In Exodus chapter one, chapters 1 and 2, we, Satan moved Pharaoh to kill all the baby boys, to end the possibility of Jesus coming from the nation of Israel. He, he moved Saul to try to kill David. Because it was the house of David that Jesus was to come. A lesser known story in Second Chronicles uh, chapter, uh, chapter 22, I encourage you to go and read this, about this wicked Athaliah who was chosen to destroy the royal lineage of the house of Judah, all in an effort to keep Jesus from being born. Satan moved Haman to plot against genocide of the Jews in the book of Esther. He moved Herod to, to attempt to kill Jesus in the birth narrative in the Gospels. First Peter reminds us as well, as well where Peter there says, be sober-minded and be watchful because your enemy, your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. This has been Satan's game plan from the beginning to devour those who belong to Christ and even to devour 
Jesus himself. And that's the imagery we see in Revelation chapter 12, where he is waiting to devour the newborn king. But we've read enough of Scripture. We've read enough of the Gospels. The fact that we have Acts and Romans and the Epistles and and Revelation where we're reading today, we know enough about Scripture to know that he failed. We know that as soon as she gave birth, according to chapter 12, verse 5, when she gave birth to a male child, one who was going to rule all the nations, and um, at that point in time, he was whisked away. But the child was caught up to God and to his throne. And there we have, in one breath, the story of Jesus' life on earth, his birth to his ascension. There's a whole lot that happened in those 33 years between the birth and the ascension. But in one instance there, in one sentence, there is the summary of Jesus coming. So why does it skip over all of the the death, the burial, the resurrection, straight to the the ascension? Why does it go straight from the manger to the apostles standing around with their hands in their robes watching the Son of God return to, to, to God? Well, it's because that is covered elsewhere in the book of Revelation. Uh, you can go back and you can read, especially in like chapter 5, you can, you can see uh, that, that he has already covered that. And also because as the apostles stood there and watched Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, ascend back into heaven, Satan at that point in time had to have realized that all of his plans to devour the Son, to stop God's plan, were over. Because the cycle, the plan had been finished. And just as the apostles stood there with their mouths open watching this miraculous sight, Satan has to realize he is defeated. Because God's plan has been fulfilled. Satan disgraced himself and dishonored himself, was cast out of heaven, was defeated because of his idolatrous behavior his ambition that led him to be more than God. God exalted and honored though his son, even though his son was humiliated by us, even though his son chose to leave heaven to come here, God exalted him and honored him. We can trust God to keep his word. We can trust God to honor his son, and we can trust God to care for his people. And that's the imagery we see next. Because the woman was whisked away into the wilderness. That, may be, that seems weird to us, taken into the wilderness, but think of what the wilderness means in Scripture. Think about the Old Testament, the Exodus. After the nation of Israel had been enslaved for hundreds of years by a nasty Pharaoh and the, the Egyptian uh, uh, powers, they were freed by God. They witnessed ten miraculous signs and were set free. When the enemy enemy changed his, his mind and decided to pursue them to the point that they were now trapped between the army and the sea, God parted the sea so that they could walk across, and he led them into the wilderness. And what did he do in the wilderness? Even when we sinned, even when we believed lies, and we followed fear rather than followed God, he provided manna from heaven quail from heaven, water from rocks, water from trees. He provided for them. He grew them as a people. He protected them. He led them by a a cloud during the day and a pillar of fire at night. 
He led them. He provided for them. He grew them. Was it good all the time? No. Do you think they got tired of manna and quail? Probably. But he provided for them. And though they were tempted during that time, though they were persecuted at times during that wandering, God provided for them. And Mary, this person, this woman, God provides for his people as well. Led led her into the wilderness. Led his people into the wilderness where he provided for them and protected them. God will always protect his people. The wilderness here is a place of spiritual refuge. She may be persecuted and suffer, but she will always be provided for. And God has done this since he created us. He has provided for us. Even when we sinned against him, he provided for us. Adam and Eve sinned against him. What's the first thing he does? He provides covering for them. He takes care of them. Over and over, we see that we can trust God to provide for his people. We can trust him. The birth of Jesus shows that God has accomplished a salvation that is certain. God cares for his people. Now, again, notice the contrast between O Holy Night and where we go next in verse 7. Picture Jesus laying in that manger. Yes, there may have been a cow mooing or a, a, a donkey braying, chickens clucking, the, the, the roar of things outside, but to Mary, it's peaceful. Her baby is here. Silent night, but in verse number seven, now a war arose in heaven. Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven, and the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come, for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea. For the devil and you who dwell in them, or, but woe to you, O earth and sea. For the devil has come down to you in great wrath because he knows that his time is short. See, the coming of Jesus, the birth of Jesus, the incarnation of the Son was nothing less than a declaration of war against Satan and his army. It was God keeping his promise to ransom captive Israel with the coming of Emmanuel. And it was indeed a promise to fill the whole earth with heaven's peace. But there wasn't peace in heaven, not yet. Because when the son was born, war was going out. Some think that this war refers back to that time when Satan got too big for his britches and wanted to be like God, and he rebelled against God, and he was cast out. Some people think it was, it's pointing to the, the, the crucifixion. Um, some people believe that it's still pointing to some time in the future, some, some end times type of thing. But here again, what we think about that, where we land on that, what opinion or belief that we hold to is not the part that matters most. 
the part that matters most is that the enemy has been defeated. The coming of Christ kicked off a war and sealed our fate. Satan no longer had full access. He was bound. He was restricted. He can still roam around, and he's still doing danger. All you have to do is, is open your front door in the morning. You can see the danger, the, that, the, the, the chaos that, that Satan still <laughs> wreaks on the world. But his time is limited. In other words, they were banished, they were barred from the presence of God. And when you look at the, what he, what, how he's described again, it teaches us something about this. The great dragon emphasizes his ferocity and his terror. The ancient serpent identifies him as Satan that was back in the garden. The devil, right, Diablos, means he is an accuser, a slanderer. Satan, his proper name, literally means he's our adversary. He is our enemy. He is the one who deceives the whole world. He's the one that Jesus himself said this about in John chapter 8. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his character for he is a liar, the father of lies. He is defeated, he is humiliated in this war along with his angels. The critical and crucial battle is done. Church, we have to remember that although he can still have influence on our lives, our enemy is a defeated one. The salvation that has been promised, that is a settled reality. John hears this loud voice from heaven and he focuses on on there, on on what has happened. And he reminds them that the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down. The one who accuses them night and day, he has been thrown out of heaven. The perpetual tattletale of the world has been kicked out of his heavenly house. In his place, look what comes. Salvation. Power the kingdom of God, and the authority of Jesus Christ. That's not just describing what Jesus gained. That's describing what Jesus gave you when he defeated Satan. Salvation, power, a kingdom, and authority. So, friends, biological family, faith family, brothers and sisters, When you, on your worst day, feel Satan's breath right in your face because he is tempting you so bad, when he is trying to pull you into his world and to fall along with him, when he says, when he accuses you of being a a grievous sinner, you look at him and say, you're right, maybe the only time in all of history that you've told the truth, I am a sinner. But the power of my Savior is greater than the depths and the power of my sin. I have been saved. I have been redeemed. I have been given power. I have been given keys to the kingdom. And I have authority because my God is bigger than me. He's definitely bigger than you, Satan. Echo the words of Jesus when he said, get behind me. Your salvation has been signed 
sealed, and settled. Remember, though, that our victory comes through the blood of the Lamb. It's not something where we can say, I did it. We talked about this last week. It's not anything that we can say, hey, I've arrived. No, we're reminded here in the middle of this imagery that we have been set free, we've been given salvation and power and a kingdom and authority because of the blood of the Lamb. That is what seals our victory for us. So when we look at this, because our, 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 when our sins are washed clean by the blood of the Lamb, we're not forgiven because of us, we're forgiven because of that Lamb. We belong to God. We have been given three gifts. And I want you to cling tightly to these because we see here that Satan is losing his mind. Why? Because we have been offered these three gifts. And let's, let's look at them real quick. We have been given three gifts, and we're going to talk about these more in the next three weeks. Next Sunday, okay, Scott is going to share with you gift number one. Uh, and if you look in verse number, uh, in chapter 12, verse number 9, we see that the gifts of God stand in stark contrast to the trinkets of deception that Satan offers us. In, in chapter 12, verse 9, we see that Satan is re- referred to as a deceiver. He wants to trick you. He wants to lead you down a path. He wants you to accept the things of this world that will at best end when you end your physical life. He wants you to trade, uh, to accept those things in exchange for what God offers you that is eternal. There's even some good stuff that we have been guilty of, of, of devoting too much energy and passion for to the detriment of the perfect stuff that God has for us. Satan is a deceiver. Satan's tactic is to make evil look good. And his tactics range from slightly twisting the word of God as he did in the garden to bald-faced lies to entice you away. Church, have you allowed Satan to deceive you? Have you accepted evil as good? Have you even accepted good instead of great? God's gift is truth that transforms you in this world and ushers you into the next. That first gift that you will talk about next week with Scott is it's taking us from deception to deliverance. That is gift number one. Gift number two, uh, two weeks from now, uh, on the 12th, uh, Tony Postawait will will share gift number two with you. And if you look in in verse number 10, Satan here in verse number 10 is seen as an accuser. That's what Satan wants you to do. That's what Satan does. He accuses you of being less than you are, less than you can be in Jesus Christ. He wants you to feel shame and stay there. He wants you to realize that you're a liar and accept that that's who you're going to be forever and all eternity. He wants you to identify yourself as a cheater and stay in the shame as a cheater forever or a murderer or as an adulterer, as as whatever the sin is. He wants you to be identified by your sin rather than by the righteousness that God bestows on you when you become his child. He accuses you. Church, are you allowing yourself to be accused today? Have you accepted an identity other than the one that Christ bestows on you freely through his blood? Tony is going to talk about that, that second gift that takes us from being accused to righteousness. And then on the 19th, I'll be back to to wrap up 
uh, I'll be back he- up here to wrap up that third gift. And when we look in verse number 8, we see Satan was defeated. When we look in verse number 12, we see that Satan knows that his time is short. What happens when you know that your time is limited, when your days are number? Think of a, 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 any type of sports team that hasn't been coached well when they realize they're about to lose the game and there's nothing they can do about it. They change their tactics. They'll grab a hold of you. They'll cheat. They'll take shortcuts. They'll do anything because they are frustrated and they are trapped. They are desperate. And that's what Satan is. Satan is desperate and he wants his desperation to be taken on by you. (coughs) He wants you to, to realize along with him that his days are numbered and that hell is in the eternity. That gift number three takes us from being trapped to being transformed through the blood of the Lamb. So church, as we wrap up today, which of these gifts do you most need to receive to unwrap and to accept? Are you living a life because you've been deceived? Are you living in an identity that's not supposed to remain with you because you've accepted the accusations of Satan as truth? You've allowed him to shape your identity rather than the one who died for you? Or are you desperately trapped right now? Which of those three gifts do you need to realize in your life? I pray that as you go through this week that you're using the one sheet, that you're, you're, you're reading these, at least these 12 verses and just pouring over them and praying over them and, and weeping over them, both in joy and out of misery because you've accepted something that wasn't supposed to be given to you. But I also want you to think, who in your life, who in your family, who in your circle of friends or your place of work, who needs to accept? the gifts of Christmas. Take a dozen of those little cards. Use them as invitations to join Scott, to join Tony, to join myself as we share with you the gifts of Christmas.